For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how federal tax cuts will be felt in this state. Essayist Adiba Nelson reflects on what it takes to blend two families into one and explore the beauty of the natural world through the words of poet Amy Nezuku Matatil. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The passage of the federal tax reform package in December was supposed to mean a cut in what we pay. But will it really? Christopher Conover reports. President Donald Trump promised tax cuts before Christmas. And just days before his self-imposed deadline, he got his wish. Congress passed a massive overhaul of the tax system, the first in decades. The typical family of four earning $75,000 will see an income tax cut of more than $2,000. They're going to have $2,000. And that's, in my opinion, going to be less than the average. You're going to have a lot more than that. New paycheck deductions are still being worked out by the IRS and employers. Clayton Clark is a Tucson small business owner. He owns Swan Amity Studios, a local quilting company. While selling his goods at the University of Arizona Farmers Market this week, he said if the numbers promised by the president become a reality, he knows what he'll do with the money. We are so small and so new, uh, we will reinvest it uh, into the business itself. Uh, I wish it was would be large enough uh, savings that we could say we could hire somebody, but maybe through reinvestment we'll be able to grow fast enough that we could hire somebody down the road. Pima Community College instructor Ed Evangelista says he's still trying to figure out how much money the federal tax cuts could save him, but he doesn't plan on making any big purchases with the extra cash. When you look at how much it is and you factor it out over a 26 paycheck period, you I don't think it's like I'm going to suddenly have 300 more dollars to spend every paycheck. I'm just going to have maybe 20 or 30 dollars. So it'll probably just go to everyday stuff. Those numbers the president and members of Congress are talking about deal only with federal taxes. Arizona, like 35 other states, ties what you pay in state taxes to your federal income tax. The Arizona Department of Revenue looks at how federal and state income tax laws conform. Department spokesman Ed Greenberg says the agency looks at the two tax systems every year. This is a statutorily required report. It, it's it's uh, completed each year by the Arizona Department of Revenue, which then delivers it to the Arizona legislature and the governor. The report from the state this year shows a range of options for the governor and state lawmakers. If Arizona decides to conform its taxes with the federal taxes, in many areas, Arizona taxpayers will owe more. One example, gone are certain itemized tax deductions. That could cost Arizona taxpayers $170 million in additional state taxes in the 2019 fiscal year. That includes charitable giving, which has Kathy Jensen, the volunteer supervisor for the Humane Society of Southern Arizona, concerned. Since fewer people will be itemizing on their taxes, I'm not sure that um, the incentive to give monetary donations will still be there. 
The State Department of Revenue's Ed Greenberg says the department is looking at the numbers with some caution. The report acknowledges it will take time for, for taxpayers, for, for uh, businesses, for tax preparers and others to, to assess the, the federal law and understand the, its full implications and then make the decisions and plan tax strategies uh, accordingly. So there, there, there's some ways to go here uh, to determine uh, the, the, uh, the full impacts of uh, federal tax reforms on the state of Arizona. The ultimate decision on Arizona tax policy is up to the legislature. At this point, there's no move to change Arizona's tax code to keep state residents from paying more in Arizona income taxes. But that could change at any time. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. In this essay, she talks about finding the perfect recipe for a family. This is The Word, and I'm Adiba Nelson. Blending families is not nearly as much fun as blending margaritas. Remember being a kid and imagining the kind of person you were going to marry? I do. At six years old, I proclaimed proudly that I was going to marry a man named Ken, or maybe it was Kevin. We were going to have two kids, Bobby and Rebecca, a big house with a white picket fence and a golden retriever. Oh, and we'd be 21 when we got married and have our first kid by 22 and last by 24. Thank God for those imaginary children that this dream did not come true. Those kids would be wards of the state in no time. Fast forward 32 years, and yes, I did finally marry the man of my dreams. It was just a very different dream. This dream culminated in a man 12.5 years my senior, atheist, his two grown sons, and my one six-year-old daughter. It also came with a full bar because blended family. Let me tell you folks, blending families is not for the faint of heart. We are two people who are more than a decade apart in age, one raised middle class and one raised dirt poor. One lived in one house up until they left for college and the other has to use fingers and toes and both of someone else's hands to count all the places they've lived. One was raised in an Afro-Latin family with loud music, heated arguments and grudges and the other raised in a Jewish family with loud talking, heated arguments, and hugs two seconds later. Let me add to this that I was raised as an only child by an incredibly strict single mom, and he was the baby of the family with two parents that were pretty laid back and are still married to this day. When I tell you that we couldn't be more different if we tried, I'm not kidding. So, How do you go from two insanely different individuals living life separately to two insanely different individuals merging their separate lives into one family portrait 
all while avoiding a cosmic meltdown? Well, very, very carefully. And with a bottle of wine. Or maybe 50 bottles of wine. You can imagine that the difference in our upbringing greatly affected our views on parenting. And this difference greatly affected our ability to peacefully cohabitate when we first moved in together. I grew up fast and independent, typical latchkey kid, could cook, do my own laundry, and take buses across town by myself by the time I was 13. I expected the same level of independence and autonomy in his two boys. My husband, on the other hand, was their chauffeur, chef, and laundromat. This was not working for me at all. I was not about to be anyone's maid and I surely did not expect him to be a butler. He and his two sons, having lived like bachelors before I came along, they were used to bachelor living. Walking around in their underwear, peeing with the doors open, openly joking about things that teen boys joke about with their dad when a woman isn't around. Except now, a woman was around. All the time. Our first night of living in the same house, I saw my 17-year-old stepson naked. Naked as the day is long. He stepped out of the bathroom right as I was coming into the hallway to talk to my husband. That, my friends, is something I can never unsee. I have been snarked back to for making people put their dishes in the sink, told I hate you, and told we didn't choose you, he did. However, I've also had my daughter fall hopelessly in love with her new big brothers, been comforted by their concern when my mother was hospitalized for a month over the holidays, and was moved to tears when just after their father and I officially became husband and wife, the older of the two hugged me and said, I have two mothers now. This blending stuff is not for the fan of heart, folks. I have slammed doors so hard pictures fall off the wall and shatter. I have drunk entire bottles of wine by myself because stepkids. I have also learned to look with empathy at the teenage heart and mind. I've learned to stand my ground when I need to, but also know that not everything is a battle. I've learned what it's like to have a child that doesn't look different, but is different, be held to unfair standards because his disability was not taken into account. I've learned that not trying to understand mental illness is just as bad as not trying to understand a physical disability, if not worse. Every day is work. Every day is a test. Sometimes I fail a little, and sometimes I fail so hard, I wonder if my husband made a mistake in marrying me. But every day, I show up, and I try to get it right. So this is my dream life. It is a far cry from my fantasy when I was six, but life has that way about it. You ask for chocolate ice cream, and it gives you vanilla with sprinkles and pistachios and caramel sauce. It's not at all what you asked for, but as it turns out, you love it. You crave it. You need it. And you wonder how in all the years beforehand, 
You never knew it could be this good. The end. You can find much more of Adiba Nelson online, especially at her website, The Full Nelson. The beats were by Benby. and I'm going to read a poem called The Woman Who Turned Down a Date with a Cherry Farmer. Of course I regret it. I mean, there I was under umbrellas of fruit so red they had to be born of summer and no other season. Flip-flops and fish hooks, ice cubes made of lemonade and sprigs of mint to slip in blue glasses of tea. I was dusty, my ponytail all askew, and the tips of my fingers ran, of course, red from the fruit wounds of cherries I plunked into my bucket, and still he must have seen some small bit of loveliness in walking his orchard with me. He pointed out which trees were the sweetest, which ones bore double seeds, puffing out the flesh, and oh, the surprise on your tongue, with two tiny stones, a twin spit, making a small gun of your mouth. Did I mention my favorite color is red? His jeans were worn and twisty around the tops of his boot, his hands thick but careful, nimble enough to pull fruit from his trees without tearing the thin skin, the cherry dust and fingerprints on his eyeglasses. I just know when he stuffed his hands in his pockets and said, okay, couldn't hurt to try, and shuffled back to his roadside stand, to arrange his jelly jars and stacks of buckets, I knew then I had made a terrible, terrible mistake. I just know my summer would have been full of pies, tartlets, turnovers. So much jubilee. Amy Nizuku Matatil is a professor of English in the University of Mississippi's MFA program. But as you'll hear in the next interview, she's called Many Places Home. Her poems are full of rich, sensual descriptions of nature that often connect directly to her reader's five senses. This year sees the release of her fourth collection of poems called Oceanic from Copper Canyon Press. Last fall, Amy Nazuku Matatil visited Tucson as a guest resident at the University of Arizona Poetry Center, which gave me a chance to talk with her about her fascinating journey. I lived in Arizona, in Glendale, um, from 1982 to 1986, um, and I always say it's, it was the most fun place to be a child of the 80s. Um, my parents, no matter how busy they were, uh, my father is from India, and my mother is from the Philippines. I was born in Chicago, so when we moved to Arizona, it was a big shift for us, uh, for all of us. And I can appreciate it now as a parent, but my parents worked so much, but they always made it a point to take us outside and not just to make us be outside, but to 
get us to learn the names of plants and animals in the Arizona landscape. So as a very young child, I learned about acatillos, chuparosa, saguaro, you know, um, javelinas and the cactus wren and all those things. Um, Dad made sure that I was able to identify constellations in the night sky so that I never realized this, but that was the best training for a poet and a writer because I had this vocabulary since I was a little kid. And no matter where I am on the continental U.S., I don't feel lonesome or out of place because I can look up at the sky and, and see these constellations that I've known as a little girl. That's a really fascinating take on it. And that was exactly what I was going to ask you is mm. it seems like having a background like that makes it so that you're never really far from home. Yeah. Gosh, we moved around six times before I graduated high school. Um, and some of it was trying, but I also learned by example of my parents to look at it as not the end of the world, but as a place to learn more about our planet. Specifically, oh, here's a whole new landscape. And when I moved from Phoenix to Western New York, um, learning about maple trees. You know, we didn't have maple trees in suburban Phoenix. My yard was gravel and saguaros. So mm-hmm. going to a completely different landscape, I learned how to make maple syrup. I learned how to tap trees. And <laughs> um, so I tell my students now, I don't even want to listen to when you say I have writer's block. There's too many things on this planet to write about. Um, you just need to open up your eyes a little bit more. And it's funny, I, last time I was in the state, I did a little um, visit at Arizona State. And, you know, the students there were saying how tired they are writing about the desert. Um, but they they thought my students writing, I brought some student writing from Western New York, and they were dazzled by the writing about snow. I teach a nature writing class. They thought the snow writing was so beautiful. And then vice versa, my students in Buffalo were so just done with writing about winter and snow. And then they were dazzled by my Arizona State students writing about you know, Gila monsters and and um, just the yeah. desert, the night sky, and um, being outside so much. So <laughs> the grass really is green. It is, yeah, yeah. Well, that is an interesting contrast. I think that there's always been a field for nature writing mm-hmm. and for poets who were inspired by Mother Nature. So let's talk about myth and symbolism a little bit, because okay. these are things that seem to be somewhat neglected in a lot of contemporary lit. Mm. And so, to find your very open and and embracing attitude towards using this kind of imagery Mm -hmm. in your poetry is, uh, I think, interesting. So tell me if you think that myth and symbolism are really kind of getting their fair due these days in writing, or does that bother you at all? I mean, I guess it really kind of depends on who you turn to. You know, there's there's people that want kind of a big break from reality. And so they, I think they turn and find, you know, many really exciting young adult authors are writing really interesting kind of revisitations of myth, um, mm-hmm. myths that weren't in mainstream when I was growing up. Um, lots of interesting takes on um, where the heroines or, or heroes of these novels are, um, figures from mythology, Hindu mm-hmm. mythology or something like that, you mm-hmm. know, so that's, that's really interesting to me. You know, going back to my childhood, my parents are both in the medical professions, so they would be mortified to hear me say, I think they're absolutely the first poets I ever heard. And bedtime stories, we didn't have Dr. Seuss. They just didn't know these authors, but they would put me to bed with saying, you know, their own kind of myths. And even though they're so enmeshed in the sciences, they absolutely, my mother's you know, folklore from the Philippines. It would be like, oh, don't don't go to bed with wet hair or um, an old man will follow you or you'll go blind if you um, hear a bird singing at night, you know, so go inside now. You know, things like that that were used as cautionary <laughs> tales, but I grew up not knowing 
is that true? Well, mom said it, so it must be true. But then the, you know, rational thought, think that there's no way that could be true. And so that kind of was seamless. And yet at the very same time, my parents put such an emphasis on learning about the sciences and cold hard facts. So, I mean, very clearly I wrote a poem about this where um, one of my mother's stories was about um, an actual flower that grows in the South Pacific called the corpse flower. But she used to tell me, you know, oh, this is, it would eat you alive if you were in the forest at night. And then she'd say, okay, good night. <laughs> and then leave the room and it'd be like, wait, what, what are you talking about? And so I would just, you know, as a little girl be laying there with eyes bright, wide open, pondering, is this real? Is this, is this myth? She said it, she's seen it. So it could be real. Turns out, you know, years later, I kind of forgot about it. But then years later, um, I realized I was doing research on Broadway musicals. I realized the corpse flower was actually the the basis of the Broadway musical Little Shop of Horrors. And it turns out that is actually an actual flower that grows um, in the Pacific Southeast. And then now it's been cultivated in many botanical gardens across the country. So that it, it floored me to know that in my mind, I think I thought, well, that must be one of my mom's crazy stories. And maybe the eating part was true, but I found out there's a whole people who believe that this cor- that this flower will eat you if you are walking in the forest at night. So that is kind of for me, that's how I grew up is fact and fiction kind of blend in together. And I knew to just be quiet and, you know, not really share this with first dates or <laughs> friends, you know, girlfriends. But and- now as a, as a parent, you must realize that this is a cautionary tale. This is shorthand. <laughs> yes. Oh, this, absolutely. It's a way to keep your child from sneaking out. At absolutely. hundred percent. I didn't see it at the time. I just was thinking there's so much that I haven't seen yet. So it made me have, you know, want to go out of, you know, my little suburban enclave in Phoenix or it made me want to to explore. So it almost maybe did the opposite. It made me nervous to think I don't want to disappoint <laughs> my parents. At the same time, it made me yearn to explore the world, you know. So maybe didn't really have the, you know, the ideal outcome for my parents. But uh, but actually it was the best. I look back now and think it was the, absolutely my parents set me up. Um, in the best possible way to have the language and vocabulary for a poet. And that was not at all their plan. They very much wanted me to follow in their footsteps and be a doctor. (laughs) So So tell me about your next published work. It's called Oceanic. How did you know when you had a book? Hmm. Yeah, I'm always so jealous of people who have kind of book projects to say, oh, I'm working on this book, working on this book. To me, it's never been that way. It's always been, I'm going to write a poem and then I write another poem, and then write another poem. After I get about 50 or so, I, I do the printout, the first printout, and see, okay, where are these gelling? Are they gelling together? And then, you know, with maybe shock and horror and despair, realizing after 50, maybe only 10 of them I would want to see the light of day, then you go back to the desk and write another poem and another poem. Since my last collection came out I now have two little ones so that process has been slower and it took a good five solid years for this book till I felt it was coming together um and I'm okay with that you know uh, I'm not I don't subscribe to that I have to put a, a new workout every two years or so um in the meantime I was also living a very full and rich life and being present for my kids and my husband and my students and in my, the back of my mind, I was hoping, I knew that I, I was always returning back to you ocean metaphors, so I knew something was happening, but other than churning out a poem when I could in between birthday parties and tennis practice and stuff, uh, 
that was really my process, you know, um, a full, long, happy process. So at the end of the day, when you finally got time to take rest and mm-hmm. you're, you're starting to go to sleep, how likely is it on a scale of one to 100 <laughs> that you're thinking about poetry? Um, one. Really? One. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I would think that's the time to yeah, let words no, float. I'm, um, I love sleep and without being too racy, I love my husband <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, um, and that is such precious time. So our days are filled with poetry and writing and books. When we get into the bedroom, that's the last thing I'm thinking about. And I'm so happy with that. And we've been married for 13 years and, uh, yeah, I guess I'll end there to not make my husband cringe. Um, but because so much of my life is purposely filled with writing and literature and wonderment, when I'm behind closed doors with my husband, I'm just happy to be there in the moment with him. And uh, and he appreciates that. Uh, he he does the same thing. With that's me, your so, time. Yeah, that's our time together as a couple. Special thanks to the University of Arizona Poetry Center for making this interview possible. And now here is Amy Nizuku Matatil with swear words. Even now, I laugh when I see the look on my mother's face when I swear in Tagalog. I have no idea what these phrases really mean, but they've been spattered on me since I was still a fat, bawling baby and scattered onto my head when I've toppled juice glasses on white carpet or come home past curfew. Sometimes the lengths of my skirts or driving her through a red light produces ones with a bit of a gasp a wet sigh of disapproval. Now I catch myself saying them out loud when I knock my knee against the coffee table, slice a bit of my knuckle with paper. When I asked her, she told me one phrase meant God, so of course I felt guilty. Another is crazy female lost piglet, which doesn't even make sense when I think of the times I've heard her use that, and still others she claims are untranslatable. But the one I love best is Diablo, the devil, pronounced Jablu. She uses it as if to tell me, I give up. You do what you want, but don't come running to me. After I tell her I bounced a check or messed up a romance with a boy she finally approved of. Jablu, Jablu. Here comes a little red devil running past the terracotta flower pots in my mother's sunroom, tiny pitchfork in hand. Jablu, Jablu and still another from behind the kitchen curtains, a bit damp from the day's splashes of the sink. Today, when they meet, they dance a silly jig on the countertop, knock over the canister of flour, and leave little footprints all over the place. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.